Hello there, and welcome to the SLP Now podcast, where we share practical therapy tips and ideas for busy speech-language pathologists. Grab your favorite beverage and sit back as we dive into this week's episode. Hey there, it's Marisha, and today we are going to be diving into all things mixed groups. And I'm so excited about this episode because this is something that I really, really used to struggle with, especially when I was a CF. I felt like I could only make a difference when I was seeing students individually. And I definitely think there are times when it does benefit a student to be working with an SLP one-on-one. But I also think that when life gives you lemons, you can make lemonade. And in the schools, we don't often have the ability to see all of our students individually. In fact, I think that's very rare. And we are able to cope by seeing mixed groups of students and we get to make it work. And I've learned to really embrace it and make the most of it. I've seen some really amazing things come out of it. It's not something that I feel like I just have to deal with. I've actually learned to enjoy it and see some benefits from it. So the goal for our chat today is to go over some strategies and just some tips to make the most of mixed groups. So I've got five big tips for you and we're just gonna dive on in. So the first tip is to embrace it. (laughs) So yes, our therapy sessions might be more effective if we saw students one-on-one. We might be able to have more of an impact. But what if we turn that around and what if we look at the benefits of seeing students in a mixed group. We have the opportunity to give students the opportunity to see their peers model different concepts because in a mixed group, some students will have great vocabulary, some will have great grammar, some will have great articulation, some will struggle with grammar, some will struggle with vocabulary. And it's really cool because then we can see students demonstrate their strengths and use their strengths to help their peers, but then it's like a symbiotic relationship almost. So they are able to help and support each other and offer encouragement to each other. And it's just been really cool. The students get to learn what the other students are working on and they are able to support each other. It can even facilitate carryover into the classroom. So I just challenge you to stop thinking about the things that are a problem with mixed groups because unfortunately, they're here to stay. They're probably not going anywhere in the immediate future. And the only option is to embrace them and to make the most of them. So I think that initial mindset shift is really important. So what do you think the benefits of a mixed group can be? Like maybe we can ramp up that peer modeling and look at that as a benefit. We can see students supporting each other. We can see them facilitating carryover. We can see it as an ability to help 
students who are struggling, a lot of times our students struggle with social relationships, and we can use that as an opportunity to cultivate relationships with their peers. It can make it really easy to implement curriculum-based therapy. If we're able to pull students from the same classroom, that can make that really easy. And I'm sure there are a lot more benefits to mixed groups. It can just be more engaging and dynamic and potentially more fun than a one-on-one group. It's different for everyone. I just wanted to throw out some different ideas because I want you to start thinking about them. Like what are things that you can appreciate about a mixed group? Okay, so hopefully you took a second to think of at least two or three things that resonate with you. And then I'm going to share different ideas throughout this podcast that will hopefully help you come up with some more ideas. So the second piece is setting up a data system. And this is something that I really, really struggled with. This is why I disliked mixed groups because I just felt like I was constantly flipping between papers. I just had my head in my data book the entire session. I didn't feel like I was connecting with the students and helping them actually make progress. I was kind of just trying to manage the basics and that was it. But then I found a way to collect data that wasn't quite so overwhelming. And there are different data collection systems will work for different SLPs. And I actually did a roundup of different data systems that you can check out. I'll link to it in the show notes, but if you're super excited to head there now, you can go to blog.slpnow.com slash student dash data. I know that's a little bit long. blog.slpnow.com slash student dash data. And so that includes a roundup of different data ideas, but it also includes a quiz that helps you determine which data collection system makes the most sense for your caseload because it is it definitely varies depending on your work setting and what that looks like for you, but that's a really great start. My ideal data system ended up being digital. I really like the digital data system because I had to bill Medicaid and it was a pain (laughs) to take data on data sheets and kind of, I was still flipping through papers trying to get everything organized. So I needed something that would be organized for me, which digital data systems organize things for you. I also really like that I could create a template for my Medicaid notes. So all I have to do is take data in the session. And then at the end, I just generate those templates. And at the end of the day, I just copy and paste those into my Medicaid system. And that works incredibly well for me. And it just checks all of the boxes that I needed. So my current kind of workflow and how I get got that set up is at the beginning of the year, I set up my caseload inside of the app and I'm using SLP now because that's what I made. (laughs) But yeah, so I add my students, I schedule all of my sessions and I just set them up for the whole year and the schedule inevitably changes and it's really easy to adjust that. So I have that all set up. And then 
when I log in for my therapy sessions, the session that I need is just right there on the main page. I open that up and I click the data collection button and I'm able to take live data right there and I can toggle between my different students, which is incredibly important for mixed groups because it helps me in a lot of different ways because one, I don't have to flip between papers. Two, it's just like right there, ready for me. It has the materials that I need. It had like I attached my probes for the different skills. I attached the teaching visuals. I attached the activity that we're working on. And the cool thing is with the digital piece, I can attach like those core materials one time and then they're there forever. So I have 90% of my therapy plan for the year. I just have to find the glue for the sessions. And my glue is often a literacy-based therapy unit. So for younger students, that is often a picture book. For older students, it's a fiction or nonfiction unit. And for emerging communicators, I do a lot around core vocabulary. And I think it's still really important to incorporate literacy even for those students. So I have different units that I've created that help teach and give students exposure to the different core vocabulary. And then we also kind of tie it together with different books. And so that is what works really well for me. And I love it too because everything is just in one space, like all of my materials, all of my data. I can easily see where the student was last time. And yeah, getting back to the workflow, how I set things up is I have the students walk into the room and I like to collect my probe data right at the beginning of the session. I use that information to know where to go in therapy. And so I have them come in and they know what to expect. They oftentimes are able to grab their probe or if it doesn't include any visuals, they're just ready for it. And I just go through and I just pick one goal each session, but we go through and collect the probe data for their target goals. And then I can quickly see if they're having a good day or a not so great day. And that also tells me how much support I need to give them when we dive into our actual unit. So it helps me be prepared and it keeps me from giving too much or too little support. Like it lets me gauge exactly where I need to start. And I'm of course making adjustments throughout the therapy session and being dynamic within the session, but it just really helps get me set up. And then that's a really good, within the first couple of minutes, I can know if we need to change up the activity or not. And the way that I manage the students as they're coming in, usually the probe is super quick, but I always have their visuals ready to go. So one common thing that I have them do is just review, like look at the visual for the skill that we're going to be primarily focusing on that day. And we don't always just focus on one skill, but I like to have the students be mostly focused on one skill and then we can adjust that as they're making a lot of progress, as they're getting closer towards graduation. Like at that point, they would be able to manage a little bit more because it'd just be a little bit more of a review. But that's one thing I have them do. Sometimes 
the activities that I have them, the probes involve a reading passage. So I'll have them read the passage as I'm probing another student, and then we can kind of switch off that way. And sometimes I just have some quick practice activities ready to go if I know that I'll need a little bit more time with a different student. So those are just some ways that I manage that. And it really depends on the dynamics of the sessions, but we have a really good routine within the session. So students know what to expect. They know why they're coming to speech. They know why they're working on their goals. And so that really helps with that buy-in and the motivation to do what they're supposed to do. And so I don't have a lot of trouble with that. There are some groups that are trickier than others, but that structure generally works really well. Um, so that's what we do. So I start with that probe data, and then after a couple minutes of doing that, we jump into actual practice. And I use a literacy-based therapy framework, literacy-based therapy framework, the five-step process developed by Ukrainitz and Gillum. And I use that throughout my unit. So listen to the episode on how to use books for an overview of how that works. But as you can imagine, if you're familiar with literacy-based therapy, or if you've just heard a little bit about contextualized intervention in general, it's not easy to take super clean data because in that model, we're constantly providing students with support. And we're adjusting that level of support so that the student can be successful, but it's not easy to take just clean black and white data. That's why I start with my probe because that's my clean data and that tells me where we're starting. But when we're doing that contextualized intervention, like if we're targeting grammar concepts as we're reading a story, I can still get an idea of how well a student is doing, but it's not based on pure plus and minus scores. It's based on how much support I'm giving the student. So I developed a rubric that helps me keep track and just be consistent with my description of the level of support because that's really important. And I usually attach that to the IEP so that if anyone ever inherits my students and they're looking at my data or any progress reports, then they know what those different components mean. And it's just really well defined. And so I track accuracy with support in that way. So I typically aim for the students to be about 80% accurate, and I will track that just to make sure that I'm giving the correct amount of support because if they're much lower than that, then I need to increase my support. And if they're much higher than that, I need to decrease the level of support. And that's how I make that work. And so it's dynamic throughout the session. Then I just use that rubric to document the level of support. And I'll link to that in the show notes so you can have access to that rubric as well. Okay. So we're on to step three. So the next step is to organize your visuals. And <laughs> I've talked about this a lot already on all of the different platforms, and I've mentioned it a couple times in different podcasts, but mixed groups can feel incredibly messy. But if you have your core set of materials, you're automatically more confident and 
more calm, more prepared to tackle the session. And your students will start to understand your organization system too. And they'll be able to find their own materials eventually as well. So I am obsessed with my therapy tote, if you don't know it already. I totally am. And I put a little file tote inside of my little travel therapy case on wheels. It's like a suitcase kind of. But I put in a file tote and then I have a folder for each skill. And that's where I keep my visuals. And I put them in sheet protectors so that I can just pull them out. They're super durable and students can write on them using dry erase markers. We can make them interactive and fun. And that's so incredibly helpful. And I want to make sure that I have a visual for every goal that I'm targeting on my caseload, especially when I'm using contextualized framework and working in mixed groups. That's like a double whammy. I really need each student to know what he's focusing, he or she is focusing on. And there's no better way to make that clear, like crystal clear, (laughs) than by having a visual right there on the table. And it's really great because it can get a little bit chaotic and there's a lot of talking going on and there's a lot of different moving pieces. And I found that by having that visual, it just anchors everyone. They know, each person knows what they're focusing on. And it also helps me to cue students even in a crazy group setting because I can just point to the visual and After an initial teaching session of that skill, I can just point to it and the student remembers and accuse their memory of what they were supposed to do. And it just, sometimes I do have to give additional verbal cues, but sometimes just that gesture is enough to get them on track, which over the course of several sessions is absolutely a game changer because you're doing so much less talking. There's so much It's just a lot more calm and then we can really focus on developing the skill rather than just trying to explain the skill over and over and over. We have something to anchor things off of and it just helps the session flow that much more smoothly. So that's incredibly important. And I would also add that having assessments ready to go is incredibly helpful as well because you want those for the probe data. And I've been playing around with different ways to organize the probes. Like the latest system that I have is just keeping a binder with the skills that need visuals to go with them. And then we can just easily flip to the correct page. And then if it doesn't require anything to go with it, if I'm just saying, okay, um, tell me two meanings for bat or whatever, if we're working on multiple meaning words then I can just give that to the student verbally. They don't need a visual stimulus. And I'll just attach that assessment to their profile and to the session. So I can just quickly open that up and read it off right from the app. And that just makes it really easy to go back and forth. But yeah, I'm still trying to figure out the best way for that. I've tried different decks so that students can come in and grab their deck with the visuals for the probe. But yeah, I think I really like the binder system because it just fits nicely into the tote. It's easy to flip between the different pages and it's just easy to keep track of. 
but I am always open to suggestions there. That's working for me currently. And then the fourth step, which I alluded to already, is to create a routine. And I wrote mega blog posts and I've presented on therapy routines several times, but it just helps everyone know what to expect and it keeps things consistent and it's just a really great way to set things up. My general therapy routine includes four steps. It starts with an introduction, then dives into teaching, practice, and a wrap-up. And this is what we would do in any given session, but it really varies because like ideally the introduction is just a quick thing. Sometimes we might have to spend the entire time teaching. Sometimes we have to spend the entire session, like we've got the teaching down, we just need to practice. But some sessions, the student's just not ready to learn and we spend a bunch of time in the introduction phase. And it's just really dependent on where the student is and where the group is. And we just we just take it as it comes. It doesn't have to be like a perfectly equal cyclical kind of routine. It's just the main four components that we want inside of our therapy sessions. And it just really helps us prepare ourselves and know what we're doing. And then the students start to know what to expect as well. And we can have some language around that. But I'm just going to do a quick overview of the four different steps. So we start with the introduction and that typically includes a check-in, like are the students ready to learn? And we can do this in a number of ways. You can have a clip chart where the students walk in and they put their name, where they're feeling. Like Nicole Allison has a really great freebie in her store that includes that clip chart. One of my special education teacher friends does a temperature check with her students and she does it on a scale of 1 to 10, whereas 1 is the worst day ever and 10 is the best day ever. And as her students walk in, she has them sit down and then they put their fingers up for where they are at. And it's just a really great way for her because she'll get the group started with whatever activity and then she can follow up with whatever students, like if someone's like twiddling their fingers and holding up all 10, they might need to calm down a little bit. And if someone puts up a one, they're having the worst day ever, then we might want to check in with them too. And it doesn't have to be a huge thing. Like if someone's just super hyped up, we might have them do just like a quick sensory activity. Or if someone has the worst day ever because they forgot their sweater at home and they're freezing cold, like it can be as, or because they dub their toe on the way to the speech room or whatever it may be. A lot of times there's just a quick thing that we can do to help regulate the student and have them be ready to go. And sometimes there's crazy things where they need a little bit more time, but if they're not ready to learn, like if we just try and chug, like just dive into the session before they're ready, I think we lose, like we are just tackling and it can be really challenging to get through anything meaningful they're not ready to learn, they're not going to be engaged, which kind of defeats the point of what we're doing because there's a lot of evidence around that. So I think it really is worth taking a couple minutes to do this and it might just be on the way to the speech room, like if we're going to pick up our students or just a quick thing at the very beginning, I think that's really helpful. 
Another thing that I like to do is to review goals before we jump into the session. This is a huge part of the RISE framework by Dr. Yu Kranitz when we talked about using books and therapy. So if you want to head back to that episode, there's more of an overview there. But I think reviewing goals, and I do this by putting down the goal mats, and that's the visuals that I talked about before, and that's our way of reviewing the goal. But there's lots of different ways that you can do that. You can make goal cards and all sorts of fun things. So that's typically what I do for the introduction. And then I dive into teaching, which links perfectly with our visuals. I bet you know why I use them so much. And this is a piece that, especially as a newer clinician, I always forgot to do the teaching piece. And it's just like expecting someone to be able to jump onto the roof without a ladder or any kind of instruction on how to get up there. We're expecting our students to go from the ground to the roof without any of that explicit instruction, that teaching, and we're expecting so much, but they don't have the tools that they need to get there. And so it's really helpful to have those visuals ready to go so that we can make sure that we're diving into that teaching. And like I said, when we first start a skill, we might start spend more time there because they'll really need more of that exposure. But after, we should be able to see that teaching time decrease as they get more exposure and as they get a little bit more practice with the skill. But those visuals have been a game changer because I only had to figure out how to introduce the skill effectively one time and then I'm just able to reproduce that and then get creative when a certain approach isn't working for a student and just make slight modifications instead of trying to reinvent the wheel every time. And one tip that I want to share, because I know it can feel kind of overwhelming to build a library of visuals for if you have a caseload of 100 students. I know that feels like a lot. So I always use a caseload at a glance sheet to break down my caseload. Especially if you're in the middle of the school year, it might not be possible to prep all of the materials, especially if you're in the middle of a crazy IEP season or whatnot. But I really like using the caseload at a glance to map out my caseload. I'll go through all of my students' IEPs and write down which goals we're working on, and then I'll just add tallies for every student that has that goal. And that just helps me prioritize which visuals I need to prep. And I can typically do, because it's really easy, especially if you have access to the SLP Now membership, I've got the different types of skills all bundled and it's really easy to print what you need. Like if you had that, you could be all prepped in an hour, but it's totally possible to find these visuals. You probably have a bunch of them already in your speech room or you can find them online or on Teachers Pay Teachers, but I will link to the caseload at a glance so you have a tool to help you get started with that. And that just really helps you make sure that you have those visuals. And once I make it, I usually make a copy of it and then I can use that. So one of them is just like the bare minimum is having visuals for each skill. And then with the copied version of it, I'll just use that to prioritize any professional development that I do because we need to have more strategies in our toolbox than just being able to have a visual to explain what it is. 
there's a lot of evidence-based strategies that we can use during the actual practice pieces of teaching a skill. And there's different ways that we can structure therapy for different skills as well. So I'll use that and I'll highlight the areas that I feel really confident about. And then I might identify some priorities that I need to learn about if there are skills that a lot of my students are working on, but I'm not feeling really confident. And this is really cool because over time, this will get easier and easier every year because you'll already have your library of visuals and you'll be building up your knowledge base of how to treat all these different areas. And so it'll just get easier and easier and there will be less and less to do every year and you'll really be able to hone those skills and it's just really amazing to see that progress in ourselves because our students are making progress and so are we and it just helps make it that much less overwhelming and then we're on to the third part of our therapy routine and that is practice and so This is what I talk about in all of the other episodes pretty much. Like we talked about how to structure practice for the complexity approach, how to structure practice using books. And we're about to dive into a series where we talk about how to structure practice for vocabulary. And so we have a lot more coming your way with really specific tips to make this happen. But some of the biggest things that we can do are One, to use authentic context. So there's some really, and again, I talked about this during the episode about how to use books, but we can see really meaningful progress with students when we're using a contextualized approach. And I mean, there's still a lot more evidence that we need to collect, but a lot of the studies are saying that it works at least as well as a more traditional approach so that doesn't mean that there's anything wrong with the traditional approach, but if we can use a strategy or an approach that helps our students make more progress more rapidly or that helps them make more meaningful progress, I think we want to take advantage of that. So I'll definitely be keeping my eye on all of the research and all of that and sharing what I'm learning along the way, but I'm really convinced about using authentic context for therapy, whether that's using books in literacy-based therapy or whether it's using materials from the curriculum, those I feel like really go hand in hand because the curriculum is often literacy-based, but there's some really great things that we can do with that. So more on that later. Another strategy is that we just want to facilitate success. We want to set students up for success. We want to avoid negative practice. We can use a prompting hierarchy to provide a good level of support. And that's why I talked about taking probe data in the beginning of the session so that I'm able to kind of prepare myself to give an appropriate level of support. And then we also want to provide feedback along the way. There's like Proctor Williams 2009 has a helpful article and there's a lot of different studies coming out about different ways to give feedback. So that's something that we'll talk about in another episode. Um, But that's just something to keep in mind. Just making sure that we're providing students with feedback of how they're doing. And if we're setting them up for success and avoiding that negative practice, it'll be pretty motivating feedback to keep them going. And then the last part of my therapy routine is just to wrap up the session. So we do a recap. We review their performance. If they're older students, 
Like I might not do this with like a three-year-old, but with an older student, I might show them their graph after we collect the data. I can show them the graph and show them how they're progressing. Like I use the SLP Now app and it automatically graphs things for me so I can easily just pull that up at the end of the session. It's actually just within the session note. So that's really easy to show the students. They can see how they're doing. They've got that visual indicator. And then we can recap what went well or what didn't go well and why and just have a little bit of discussion around that. We can make a plan for next time and either that's just in my head or we have some reflection and talk about what the student is going to do different next time. And this is also where we might make connections. So we worked on this vocabulary skill. How can you use it in the classroom? And kind of wrapping up in that way. And another piece that we can't forget about in the wrap up is homework. So it's really important for carryover and continued progress. And I have really struggled to send home worksheets. I do better sending home parallel stories when we create them in a literacy-based therapy unit, and I feel like that's a really great form of homework. I also do a good job sending home articulation targets with students. I just struggle to find meaningful worksheets, and then when I was sending home worksheets, I would just find them at the bottom of the student's backpack, and they never got done, so that was always fun. But yeah, any therapy activities I've had luck with, and I also have used Remind. It's an app, but they also have different versions like Class Dojo or Seesaw, and I like combining that with the activities that we send home because I can send a note, I can take a picture like, hey, watch out for this, this is how you can use it, and we can snap pictures of what we're doing in therapy just to keep everyone in the loop. And that's been really effective for me, and that has worked really well. Those are the four steps in my therapy routine. We have an introduction, teaching, practice, and wrap-up. And some of the takeaways here are that it's not cyclical. We might jump from one to two to three back to one (laughs) if something happens, or we might spend all of our time in the teaching phase. So there's not a super specific way, like you have to spend two minutes in the introduction, 10 minutes in the teaching. It's not like that at all. It's really flexible. It depends on the students. And I think you're doing a lot of these things already. It just helps to put a framework around it. And then we can use this to structure our therapy sessions just to make sure that things are really predictable for our students and that they know what to expect. And then they have more cognitive resources and more readiness to learn and take in all of the awesome things we're doing in therapy. But yeah, I challenge you to just take a look at this. Is there anything that you want to revamp and definitely celebrate the things that you're doing well? And then maybe just pick one thing to start with. Like what's one thing that you can add or change to make your therapy routine a little bit easier for your students? And this is just a general framework. I read a lot of different research as I was putting it together. But we always want to use data to evaluate and make changes as needed. This applies to anything that I ever talk about on the podcast. We want to definitely be taking data along the way just to make sure that it's working for our students and that it makes sense. And then we just make changes and adjustments along the way depending on how things are going. So it's a really nice process. Gotta love that data. 
and there's some really great things that we can do with that. So that wraps up step four, creating routine. And we are on to the last step, number five, which is planning ahead. So there's a lot of different ways that we can set this up. And I strongly believe that preparing your visuals and getting some pro data, like assessments gathered, like that is a huge chunk of your therapy session. I would say that it's 80 to 90% of your entire therapy plan. And especially if you're using a system to organize those, or if you're attaching them to your sessions in SLP now, or whatever other tools you're using, that is the bulk of your therapy. You'll be prepared to tackle any skill in any context if you have those pieces. And the good news is that it doesn't take a ton of time to get those set up. Just find those visuals. They don't have to be perfect. You can improve them over time. But just like map out your caseload, find the visuals you need, find the assessments you need, and get started. And if you don't have an hour to do it all at once, just tackle a little bit every day. Take 10 minutes in the morning or at the end of the day to just start tackling those pieces because I think it'll really make a difference for your session. So that's a huge part of planning ahead for your therapy. And once you do that, all you really have to do is find the glue for your sessions. So each student is most often working on a different skill and we need something to glue those things together. And this is why I talked about how to use books in therapy because that's a really helpful way to target different skills. You can also look at different articles and using that same literacy-based therapy framework to go through those skills. And if you listen to the podcast about how to use books and therapy and you're wondering exactly what it would look like or you're wanting a little bit more support to build out an actual unit, I do have a literacy-based therapy challenge that walks you through the entire process and it gives you different templates and resources and some free therapy materials to make it happen with your caseload. So if you go to slpnow.com challenge, you can find that and get access to all of those awesome resources. And I'll also link to that in the show notes. So that's what we have for today. So we did our five steps, embrace the mixed groups, and hopefully you can find at least three things that you can embrace about mixed groups. They might not be the perfect ideal situation for an SLP, but there's some definitely some amazing things that come out of mixed groups. Then the second piece is to set up a data system. I'll link to in the show notes to a post that includes an overview of a bunch of different options, as well as a quiz to help you get set up there. Then third, is to organize your visuals, like map out your caseload and figure out which visuals you need. Then step four is to build that therapy routine and just be consistent in how you're setting up your sessions. And then five is to plan ahead. And if you've prepped your visuals, you're 80 to 90% of the way there. And then I just have some different resources for you to figure out how to implement that literacy-based therapy in a more effective way. And there you have it. I hope you are walking away with some helpful, practical tips to conquer those mixed groups and walk in with confidence. 
And again, like I said before, if you'd like to access the show notes and links to the free resources, head to slpnow.com slash eight. This is also where you can find the link to the Speech Therapy PD course. You can sign up for that and earn ASHA CEUs, which is pretty amazing. And we'd love to see you live for the live courses. They happen every Wednesday night. And if you prefer to listen to the podcast, we will be back next Thursday morning. You can find us every Thursday morning with a fresh episode here on the podcast. And yeah, I can't wait to hear from you. Let me know what you think. Did you know that you could earn ASHA CEUs while joining us for a cruise? So we are announcing the 2020 SpeechTherapyPD.com Conference at Sea and we'll be going on an Alaskan cruise departing from Vancouver, BC on July 10th in 2020, so next summer. And if you book before September 30th, you will get six months of SLP Now for free, and you'll also get to join us for this amazing conference at sea where you can earn up to 12 hours of ASHA CEUs, so 1.2 CEUs. You'll get to join us for at least one live recording of the SLP Now podcast, and you'll get to hang out with our awesome presenters. So Ms. Michelle Dawson of the First Bite podcast, Leanne Por- Ann Porter of Speech Uncensored, and me. And if you'd like to find more information about the cruise, check out the show notes, and I hope to see you there. Thanks for listening to the SLP Now podcast. This podcast is part of a course offered for continuing education through Speech Therapy PD. So yes, you can earn ASHA CEUs for listening to this podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, please share with your SLP friends. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast to get the latest episodes sent directly to you. See you next time.